0: Good morning. My name is Logan. I'm a member here at Redemption Church. And this morning's scripture reading is going to be from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Logan.
1: Would you join me in prayer this morning as we look to God's word? Father, the depths of this passage are so great, um, more so than most sermons. It's hard uh, to, to stop reflecting on this one. Uh, it's hard to contain and confine what these verses mean to our lives into just a 35 to 40 minute sermon. Uh, I, I pray also, God, for your help in the area of clarity today. Uh, when it comes to the relationship between an obedient life and our faith in Christ, there are a lot of ways to cross wires and and tangle this up. And, and so I pray, God, that you would give us help, that you would go before us, and that by your grace we would keep in step with your Spirit. Um, just hours ago, my mind was focused on sleeping in a tent with my six-year-old son, when there was a thunderstorm coming, my mind was on s'mores and many other things. Uh, I remember writing this uh, a distant time ago last week, but I pray you would help me <laughs> uh, to be here and by your spirit that you would work and that you would use this time for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there, there's an experience, a, a particular experience that I trust most of us have had that I think will really help us to make sense of our passage today. We'll kind of come back to it throughout the sermon. Here's the scenario. I want you to imagine you're following a friend in a car who's sort of driving in front of you because at least the sense is that they know where they're going a little better than you maybe. But in this case, uh, you do have at least some sense of where you're supposed to go. And then I want you to imagine you are fully expecting them at this next intersection to turn left. You're getting ready to put your blinker on, but instead that friend puts their right blinker on and turns right. If you've been driving long enough, you've almost certainly been in this situation before. You've experienced this where for one split second, you do have the opportunity to go the way you think you should go. But in order to do that and to go your way, you have to separate yourself from this friend who's driving in front of you. And if we're perfectly honest, depending on who it is, I mean, it can be kind of offensive to do that, right? Because by going your way, you are saying you think they're leading you astray uh, and you think you know the way better than they do. But that's not all we have to consider either, of course. In that split second, we also have to consider the very real possibility that they are actually right <laughs> uh, and um, that you have been mistaken. And if they are right, you're going to get turned around yourself. You're going to get lost. And when you get wherever it is you're going, they're going to be standing out of their car waiting for you with this kind of look of, like, what, what, what's going on there? What happened on their face? At the same time, If you are right and they are wrong, well, you could save a little bit of time and you can actually end up looking pretty good if you go the right way. And when you get where you're going, they'll come late after you and you can be outside of your car with a smug little grin on your face, which is, I wish I I would have been leading the way here. So I want you to put yourself in this scenario, in particular, where you're following a friend Their blinker is on, and in a split second, you have to decide all of these things. Will I follow their lead and keep in step with them, or will I go my own way? So far, this letter, most of it, has been pretty intense, Uh, we've seen. Paul has some scathing rebukes. For these churches in Galatia. And most of them have to do with their confusion about, on one hand, the gospel, and therefore the family of God. A group of missionaries have persuaded them that uh, the nation of Israel, the earthly nation of Israel, is God's chosen family, and therefore, as Gentiles, their faith in Christ is, is not enough, uh, that they had to be circumcised into the nation of Israel and live under the Old Testament law. And this is what led them to rely on their flesh rather than Christ. This is what made them distort the gospel. All kinds of problems came as a result. Last week, if you remember, uh, after untangling that confusion about the family, Paul made a pretty big transition. And from that point on, his tone becomes much more pastoral here. After these last five weeks, that is, of, of untangling confusion about God's family, last week he told the Galatians to stand firm in the freedom of God's grace. And as we saw last week, part of what it means to stand firm is to stand firm with our brothers, right, in the body of Christ. We stand firm in him. And the last thing Paul said in our, in our passage last week really is important to understand what he's getting at this week The last thing he said was, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Then you'll notice the very first thing he says is, but I say, right, walk by the Spirit. In other words, everything he's talking about here is a contrast to this biting and devouring. In our passage today, Paul is explaining how the life of local churches should work when we do live together in love and service. And go figure, the whole thing is very spiritual, and it has everything to do, it depends entirely on God and not on our flesh. It's very consistent with what Paul's been saying. Now, without a doubt, our call to action in this passage is very clear. We need to keep in step with God's spirit, which means God is in us, He's trying to lead our churches somewhere, and we need to let him, right? If he, took, if he puts that left blinker on, we need to go left. If he puts the right blinker on, we need to turn right. We need to keep in step. But with this illustration in mind, our passage today is not so much about giving in directions as it is about calling us to trust the Spirit who is leading us. Uh, Our passage today, in other words, is not so much about which way to turn when as it is about how to know if we're really following the Spirit. And here's why that really matters, because in our passage, without doubt, your eyes are going to gravitate towards two lists. One of these lists is the works of the flesh. It is filled with vices. One of these lists includes the fruit of the Spirit. It is filled with virtues. Virtues. But there is a real danger in reading this as if Paul is simply telling us, hey, listen, you want to walk by the Spirit? We'll do these good things more and the bad things less. We have to remember the context of the letter, the whole argument he's making. The problem in Galatia is that these churches had turned from God by embracing a false gospel. They were relying on themselves, their earthly, bodily lives, in a way, in the way that they approached God, rather than relying on Christ's crucified flesh. Paul wants them to live together in love, as this family that only God can create. He does not want them just to be better-behaved individuals. That's not what he's trying to get done in the letter. So he certainly does want us to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. I do too. And if we do that, our lives will certainly look more and more like the second list rather than the first list. But more than instructing us how to walk by the Spirit, Paul here is explaining how we know who walks by the Spirit so that first we can avoid being misled or bewitched, Uh, by sons of the flesh, and that we can keep living together in love rather than biting, devouring, and consuming one another, okay? So with that preface in mind, all that said, I want you to notice rather than jumping into how we walk, here's what you need to do, here's how you behave, first Paul addresses in part one our desires, that is, why we walk the way that we walk. Notice in this section, Paul is explaining the tension between two different kinds of desires at war within us. The desires of the flesh, which come from ourselves, in and of ourselves, and the desires of the Spirit, which come from God, if, of course, we are actually sons of the Spirit, not just sons of the flesh. Right? In and of ourselves, our only option is to gratify the desires of our flesh. As, as Paul says actually in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, all of us. And he describes that even there as carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. This is the only way of life we have available to us if we are not born again by faith. It's a life Driven by our sinful bodily desires, the desires and passions of our flesh. The only way, notice, Paul says, to avoid gratifying the desires of the flesh is to walk by the Spirit. In other words, we can't just live in the way he's describing. We'll never do it. Our lives must be driven by different desires one scholar describes walking by the spirit in this way I think it's really helpful as a different way of being human I think that's exactly right what we're talking about is a different way of being human we'll never just change the desires of our flesh to make them sort of sync up with God's desires it's not possible If we could, frankly, Paul's already told us we would have had no reason for Christ to come and die in our place if we could just observe the law and get better at that. But next, Paul tells us why we can't just line up our desires with God's. And it is this, for, he says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to to each other, to keep you, he even says, from doing the things you want. So it's not even just that the desires of the flesh are the opposite of the desires of the spirit, and, and all of us just need to be more consistent in choosing one over the other. It's it's more complicated than that. Because the desires of our flesh are opposed to the desires of the spirit. They actually keep us from following the desires of God and His Spirit. Notice what he says next. But if you are led by the Spirit, notice he doesn't say, well, then you'll never sin. He doesn't say you'll never do any of these works of the flesh. He says, you're not under the law, which means you've been set free. You're a son of the Spirit, which means even when we do sin, it will not be credited to our account. It will be credited to Christ's account as if our flesh was crucified with his in a way that satisfied the wrath of God. Now that we are in Christ, we get all the credit that he deserves for living a perfect life according to the law, even though we haven't done it. We're not under the law. At the same time, now that we're led by his spirit, This does also mean we have these new otherworldly desires within us. And it's almost like these otherworldly desires of the spirit, they're kind of picking a fight with our desires of the flesh within us. This is why as Christians we can't just carry on being controlled by the desires of the flesh. The spirit is there to keep us from carrying on in that way. Here's the point is that this whole conversation about walking by the Spirit, it begins and ends with desires. It is not just about behavior. It's not just about performance. We can't reduce it to these things. It's about what we want. If we are not driven by the right desires that is God's rather than ours, then we will never be able to walk in the right direction. We'll never stay the course. We'll never get where God is trying to lead his people by his spirit. And so here's the takeaway. As Christians, if we want to keep in step with God's spirit, we need to pay very close attention to our desires. Very close close attention. I want you to put yourself, if you would, back in this car following your friend. And and I want you to imagine that it is God, in fact, in the car ahead of you leading the way. And I want you to imagine he puts his left blinker on when you're thinking right. Here's the deal. The way we go here, the way we turn, how we walk, will completely depend on which desires we're being led by. Completely. If what we want more than anything else is to gratify our desires and to get what we want, well, then without question, of course, we're going to go our way. Because we want to go right, and our desire to go right will keep us from following and walking by the Spirit. But if what we want more than anything else is to be controlled and consumed by this great, glorious God, then in that split second, we don't have to think about it. I shouldn't say that. I wish I didn't say that. We often do have to think about it. But in that split second, we will allow his desires to override our desires. really depends how much you trust the person you're following, doesn't it? We may think, I don't know. It seems way way better to go right here. Um, But okay. Because the Spirit leading us is also in us. And as we make this split to second decision, he is crying out in us, don't go right, Abba, Father, follow him, which keeps us from going our own way. So if we want to keep in step with God's spirit, we should not just focus on which way to turn when. As if we could just kind of navigate our own way. We can't. We must be led by him. And so instead, we need to focus on our desires so that when there is a conflict between the way we want to go and the way the spirit might lead, we will know to trust and follow the spirit. This is so important. This is so important. I would even say our entire Christian maturity hinges on this. And so here are three questions we should never stop asking ourselves as Christians. Three simple questions. The first one is this. What do I really want here? What do I really want? What is my desire? Now, this alone can be very challenging, right? Because as as Jeremiah, the prophet, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick Who can understand it? In other words, if there's anyone who's going to lie to you about the desires of your flesh, it's you, right? So much of our Christian life depends on how honest we are uh, uh, being with ourselves about our real desires. And and this this is not easy, right? Do I really want to defend the truth in this situation? Or do I really want to punish people who compromise the truth? Which is the real desire here? And how I act here will, will really depend on it. Uh, do I really want to be kind and patient to this, with this person? Or am I just avoiding a very necessary conflict with them? What's my desire? It's going to have a lot to do with which way I go. Do I really want to reconcile with this brother and sister? Is that what I'm doing in this conversation? Or am I trying to gain a leg up with them? in our rivalry, right? Our desires are complicated. Walking by the Spirit will require us to become increasingly aware of our desires and increasingly skeptical of our desires. Rather than just acting on them by instinct, we learn to to sort of take a double take here before we put that other blinker on. And with earnest, humble hearts, we have an honest conversation with ourselves about what we really want. That's the first question, what do I really want here? Next question, what does God want in this situation? And this is also very challenging because of our tendency to twist, to distort, to minimize, to disregard the word of God, especially when it contradicts our desires, which it often does. This is why works of the flesh always flourish and grow wherever God's word is silenced or ignored. If we don't really think that God is knowable to begin with or that he really has any desires for us in the way we live, or if we just pretend that every desire we have is somehow automatically coming from him, well then we will never actually keep in step with his spirit. We need to let God define his desires for us according to his word. There's also a sense in which there's a very practical benefit, just a good old-fashioned experience here, right? Uh, Over time, as we rely on the Spirit and live by faith more and more, we get better at discerning the difference between our desires and God's desires. As Paul says, we we learn uh, to test the will of God, what is good and pleasing, right? As we renew our minds over time, absolutely. The opposite is also true. The less and less we do this, the more ingrained we become in the patterns of the flesh and the harder it becomes. But here's the thing, no matter how good we are at discerning the difference between our desires and God's desires, there is still the third question that must be asked, which is namely, whose desires will I act on? Will I act on his or mine? Now, our answer to this third question obviously depends on how effectively and faithfully we've asked and answered the first two, and yet it is still essential for us to ask this regularly because there is now a war really going on within us between the desires of our flesh and the desires of his spirit. So, As, as we're sort of doing our best to follow his lead, now and then we all experience, for instance, a conflict or a certain kind of a temptation, or even just a foundation-shaking trial in our lives. And as we come into that, God will sort of put his left blinker on, and he'll say, take a breath, be patient and loving with that person that you're in conflict with, Uh, use self-control as you face this temptation, Uh, faithfully endure this trial with me. Left, go left. But, you know, we were thinking right would be be the way to go. You know, maybe a fit of anger, a little bit of strife. That was kind of what we were thinking. And the point is this, that tension is part of the Christian life. In fact, it only really becomes a tension when we enter the Christian life by faith. Before that, we just basically do what we, we just turn what what we feel best. But here's the thing, as Christians, we will veer off course in this discussion if we fail to see the entire equation begins and ends with desires. Always it's tempting to focus on our external circumstances. Well, what has changed in my life? Who wronged me? Do they have a habit of wronging me in this way? We focus on everything that's happening out there in the world, outside of our hearts, when what really matters is this. What do I really want here? What does God really want here? And whose desires will I act on, his or mine? So what I want us to see, that when Paul calls us to walk by the Spirit, this is exactly what he means. This is the life he's calling us to. He is saying, let's allow God's desires to determine our behavior. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. This is the call for us today. Now, again, if we're not truly trusting in Christ and relying on him, this option will not even be available to us because the Spirit is not in us trying to keep us from our desires. We're not led by him. And for that reason, we will just keep turning the way we want to go and keep gratifying our flesh. Now, we may make the right turns now and then. We may even live a good life by comparison to others. But remember, if we walk on our own, apart from faith in, the, in Christ, apart from the help of his spirit, we are obligated to keep the whole law, Paul told us, even just last week. Meanwhile, if we are truly heavenly sons who are filled with God's spirit by faith, we've been set free from the law. We've been set free, and we can actually live in this way. We can do it. We will crucify our desires, and we can be controlled by the desires of God's spirit. Now, here's the problem in context of the letter what Paul's writing. Is the whole problem. Desires are invisible. Anyone can say they're filled with God's spirit. Anyone can claim they're acting on his desires. And this is very confused. This is why we need to discern. In this case, actually, the problem was that both Paul and these missionaries were making those very same claims. Both of them were saying, no, this is God's true family, and I, and, and we are God's true children. And the other was saying, no, 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 we are God's true children, and this is God's true family. And this is where Paul turns to the idea here of fruit. And I think this is why he does it. If you imagine a tree, you know there are there's a system of roots underneath that tree, there's a system of veins within that tree, but you don't get to see that. It's as if it's invisible to us. If we want to discern what's going on inside the tree, what we have to consider is its fruit. We have to inspect its fruit. And so next, Paul does talk about how we walk. But in light of what we've just read about desires, in light of the rest of this letter, it is so important we understand what he means here about how we walk and what he's saying. His goal is not just to change our behavior. He's helping us to discern whose behavior is really controlled by God's desires and whose behavior is controlled by theirs so that we can reject the leaders who are sons of the flesh and follow the ones who are step with the Spirit. If we do that, then our churches will be marked by this fruit. We will love one another. We will serve one another. Next week you'll see, or next passage you'll see, we'll bear one another's burdens. But if we don't do this, our churches will be marked by the works of the flesh. We will bite one another. We will devour one another. We will consume one another. So with this in mind, the way we discern who is led by the Spirit is by paying attention to how we walk. First, Paul says this. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, uh, if you want to know who's acting on their desires, typically it's not real hard. Um, Here's how we tend to walk when we do this. Our desires lead to these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So if we're trying to discern between two different desires in our lives, and one of those desires is really pressing us to to turn left to do these things, we can be sure that desire is the one that belongs to us in our flesh, and it is the one we must resist. I want you to notice, many of these vices have the effect of setting us at odds with other people. Uh, We are jealous of others. We have rivalries, divisions, dissension with others. When we explode in anger, it's generally at others, and it has major implications and complications to our relationship with those others. In other words, our flesh tempts us to prioritize our desires over the needs and best interests of everyone else. And when, by the way, when Paul says "and things like these," that might be a pattern that we could actually apply elsewhere. Anything, any desire that pushes others away and makes us set free from them, so we can live the way we want. But but here's the thing: it's not just us either. Apart from faith in Christ, every single human being is wired by their very nature to live in this way. This is the problem of sin. So when you put them all together into a sort of religious family in a way, it gets pretty dark. It gets really dark. So as a local church, if leaders, views, ministry practices are pointing us in this direction, we can be sure those leaders, views, and ministry practices do not come from his spirit. As Paul said last week, that persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from the spirit. In other words, that's something a religious guy who's acting on his desires told you to do. When God's desires of his spirit are controlling our leaders, our churches, our views and our lives, there's a certain kind of quality to them. There's a fruit that grows on the tree, and it looks like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice, many of these virtues have the effect of actually knitting us together with other people. In many cases, you can only see this kind of fruit in a person's life if they live in close proximity to other people. For instance, how loving are we, really, if we never love anyone in particular? How patient are we, really, if we're never patient with anyone in particular, How faithful are we really if we're never committed to anyone in particular? In other words, those who are acting on God's desires will sort of reverse engineer this and they will consider others more important than themselves. That's what the Spirit does in us, helps us and empowers us to do that, kind of like Christ. Now, in both cases, with both of these desires and lists, I should say, notice Paul adds a comment about those who are marked by them. And concerning those who are marked by the works of the flesh, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when Paul says those who do such things, he is clearly not talking about like a sort of a one and done kind of a scenario. You do anything on this list and that's it, you're out. Even Christians are tempted to let their desires drive them to these behaviors. We absolutely are. What he means is those who do them so regularly, so unapologetically, as if they're a way of life. They do them, and not only that, but they are characterized by them. In that case, we can be sure they are not true heavenly sons of the Spirit. Therefore, if we follow them, we will be turning from God rather than keeping in step with his spirit. But notice, uh, when it comes to those who are marked by the fruit of the Spirit, Paul does not talk about where this kind of walking will lead you. Instead, he says, again, there's no law against these things, <laughs> which, which, which means, I think, that this is just a good life. And if you live in this way, therefore, you, you will find yourself not at odds with God And his law increasingly more and more. But then he tells us how, and this is huge, how it is even possible for some people to live and walk in this way at all. And notice, it's because, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, the reason we can walk in this way is because, first, we belong to Christ by faith, is his whole argument in this letter. And because we're no longer living by our desires, we've crucified them. Here again, this whole equation comes back to desires. Which desires drive us? And so here's the takeaway for us today. Takeaway two is that we will never be controlled by God's desires until we crucify ours. We never will. This is so important. If we are not actively trying to live the opposite of the way we want to live, we could be almost certain we are not keeping in step with God's spirit. Now, as I said, Over time, it does get easier to walk by the Spirit. It does begin to feel more natural, but even that is a spiritual thing. (laughs) Even that is something we have God to thank for and not ourselves. It is the result of His Spirit keeping us from ourselves. And there is always, no matter what, no matter how mature a Christian is, if you ask them, they will tell you there is always this nagging, lingering sense that, yeah, you know what? If I was to live the way I wanted to, it would not go well. It would not look like this. Now, with that in mind, you can see how destructive sort of the, the spirit of our age is. We talk about this a lot, individualism or, or sort of an expressive individualism where the best possible thing is, is to do in the outer life what you feel in the inner life, right? We're constantly encouraged to follow our hearts, to be true to our desires, right? If you, don't feel, if you feel like someone is has, has a threat to you in some way, just write them off. Uh, if you feel like this thing you want to do is good for you, if you feel it is, then don't worry what anyone else says. It is good for you and just do it. Uh, Even in the extreme, if you feel that you are a woman, even though you are created with male biology, don't let anyone tell you you are a man. I I say that to illustrate we are so committed to our inner feelings in the world today. We have now even begun to let them define reality for us. And this, more than anything else, is what many people mean when they think of being authentic. It's just embracing whatever desires are in them. According to Paul, the huge problem with this is that our desires are authentically wicked. We don't just need to embrace them. The whole problem is that this is what we do. We need to crucify them. And this is not just a problem out there in the secular world. This is a problem for us. This is a problem in the church. If we commit to letting God's word be our final authority, and if we commit to following Jesus in love by faith as members of his body until those things conflict with our desires, we will never keep in step with his spirit. We never will. The desires of our flesh will keep us from doing it. If we want a healthy church, if we want a vibrant spiritual life, if we even, frankly, church, want to be Christians, we need to be willing participants in the crucifixion of our flesh and its desires. So which of the desires in your heart have you been less than honest with yourself about? Uh, In what ways have you been passing off your desires as if they're actually God's? And the question for us today is, are we willing to call these desires what they really are? And are we willing to stop being controlled by them? Because until we do, we will never be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the rest. Next and final takeaway, takeaway number three, if we truly belong to Christ, we will keep in step with God's spirit. We will. Again, there will be moments of failure and defeat Uh, We will have to repent, yes, and even change course from time to time. But in the end, if we are truly in Christ, more importantly, if he is truly in us by the power of the Spirit, then the trajectory of our lives will lead to the kingdom of God and we will inherit it. In fact, more than anything else, this is how we know if professing Christians today really are Christians in a true and spiritual way. Now, on one hand, uh, this should give us an appropriate sense of, of sobriety. It really should. Uh, because the way we live is either an indication that we are God's faith-filled sons of the Spirit or that we are not. So let's not let our theology of faith and grace undermine the warning Paul has given us here. Those who are controlled by their flesh will not inherit God's kingdom. It is appropriate for us that we feel the weight of this. I'll say it as clearly as I can. If this fruit is nowhere to be found in your life, you do not belong to Christ. It's a weighty thing. And we should be able to really hear that today. Church, we must pay attention to our desires we must commit to crucifying them. Uh, We must devote the rest of our lives to cultivating this kind of fruit in all areas of our lives, individually and together. On the other hand, this takeaway should also give us a profound sense of confidence. As in, okay, the ending is is written for me here. Uh, As weak as I may be, Because I belong to Christ by faith, I will keep in step with his spirit. I will keep following him to the kingdom. As strong as the desires of my flesh may be, they are no match to the spirit of the living God. So Christian, whatever sin tendencies you are crippled by, you have to hear this. You do have the spiritual resources you need. To kill them, to crucify them, to be set free from them and to live the way that God intends. We do not have to obey our desire to look at our phones again and again and again because there's so many desires in that phone that we want. (laughs) We do not have to obey our desire to show everyone in our lives how valuable we are At every twist and every turn, we don't have to obey that. We do not have to obey our desire to take our lives into our hands at all times. And here's why. is because when we heard that gospel and we believed in God's son, his spirit took up residence in our heart. And when we have no strength, when we have no self-control, he does. Let's allow him to fight our battles as we look time and time again to Christ in faith saying simply, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your son. Without him, I would be hopelessly lost. As Christians more than anything else, that is our number one job. And here's the thing, that is what actually produces spiritual fruit in our lives. It is confessing our sins. It is crying out to Christ in faith with humble, needy hearts. That spiritual habit right there will cultivate lush gardens of spiritual fruit in our lives. Now, chances are at least some of you are wondering, and I want to address the question, what about all the loving, kind, and patient unbelievers in my life? Uh, Does this mean somehow they belong to Christ even though they don't have faith in him? Just a few thoughts on this to help us think through this. First, even the most hostile rejecter of Christ is made in God's image. And so therefore, in a sense, they certainly have the capacity for his qualities to shine through in their lives. And, And absolutely, every person does to some extent and to some measure. It's not as though everyone who's marked by the works of the flesh walks around like an evil zombie foaming at the mouth, right? This is hard to discern. That's part of the point here. Uh, It's also just possible for people to appear far more spiritually healthy than they actually are. That shouldn't surprise us. Uh, We also need to keep all of both lists in view here. When we think in this way, we often get very selective about the list as if much of the fruit that's described in the second list does not negate or undermine the first, there might be someone who's marked by many good things, and meanwhile they define their entire existence by one of these the works of the flesh. They might define themselves by a certain kind of idolatry or rivalries. They might define themselves even by a particular kind of sexual immorality. In fact, we have to remember none of this, again, is just about individuals proving how moral and, and, and pious they are. Uh, that's not the point of the letter at all. In fact, it's all about a family that God's creating. And so I would even say encourage those uh, people marked by the fruit of the Spirit to join the body of Christ. To walk with real committed people in relationships where they'll be held accountable, actually, for what they believe and how they live. And then we'll see if the desires of their flesh will keep them from obeying uh, the desires of God and being marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And most importantly, to sum up this whole conversation, I would say this. We have to understand spiritually that if faith in Christ is not the reason for their virtue, then the Spirit of God is not the source Of their virtue. John Calvin puts it this way, referring to unbelievers marked by a degree of certain fruit. He says, as for these virtues that deceive us with their vain show, they shall have their praise in the political assembly and in common renown among men. But before the heavenly judgment seat, they shall be of no value to acquire righteousness. See the difference? If you know a loving, kind, patient unbeliever, ask them why they tend to live in that way. And what they will not tell you is that in and of themselves they deserve to be judged by a holy God. Uh, What they will not tell you is that unless he sent his son to die in their place, they would be without any hope of this kind of righteousness, uh, what they will not tell you is that he deserves all the credit for the good in their lives, right? So even if they manage to do it well by all appearances, those who rely on their flesh and reject the gospel of the resurrected Christ are not and can never keep in step with God's Spirit. They won't get to the kingdom. They won't inherit it. It is only those who belong to Christ by faith who can truly live this otherworldly life. If we really do belong to Him, then we truly will. But maybe, to close here, as as you've heard all of this, you are struck by how poorly it's going in your life. (laughs) Maybe you're thinking, what if I'm just not marked by the fruit of the Spirit? What if, hearing this, I'm convinced I only ever act on the desires of my flesh. What should I do then? Well, the answer is, don't just try to live this way. Don't just try to be better. You won't be able to do it. In fact, determine the way you want to live, and then rather than living that way, consider the exact opposite. For example, try humbling yourself before this God and acknowledging that your desires are opposed to his Try confessing this to others and looking to Christ for forgiveness. Give up any hope that you could justify yourself and instead place all of that hope on Christ and Christ alone and then ask this God to reveal to you how he would have you live. Open your life to the members of a local church who believe this with you, ask them regularly, what what do you think it would look like for me to keep in step with God's spirit in this case uh, or or in that case? And then as hard as it may be to actually live in this way, see if you can do it. See if you can do it. When we try to be human in this faith-filled, spirit-driven way, uh, we may be shocked the kind of fruit that grows in our life. Let's pray together. Father, we confess how broken our desires are. Our heart is wicked. Who could understand it? Father, we confess that apart from Christ, we have no hope of fulfilling the whole law. We stand condemned before you. And Father, we ask your help, God, Would you, by your spirit, empower us to live by your desires? Help us to crucify ours. Help us to go where it is you lead us. Help us to walk in the way you've described here, God. Help us to be and to live together as your true heavenly family built on the cornerstone of Christ and Christ alone, we pray in his name. Amen.